Episode 143, Leslie Tane, award-winning financial attorney and author of the book, Life and Debt. So my favorite mistake relates back to when I first went out on my own. I was thinking that I needed to have a male partner. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Leslie, her book, her firm, and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake 143. As always, thanks for listening. And now here's Leslie Tang. Our guest today is Leslie Tang. She is an award-winning financial attorney and author of the book, Life and Debt. She has over 20 years of experience in consumer and business financial debt solutions. And before I tell you a little bit more about her, Leslie, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your story and there's a lot we can talk about um, otherwise, um, Leslie is the founder, telling you a little bit more about her. She's the founder and managing director of the Tain Law Group, PC, a law firm headquartered in New York. They're dedicated to debt solutions and alternatives to bankruptcy for individuals and businesses. She frequently provides her expertise on financial credit and debt topics, both as a public speaker and in the media. And um, Leslie, I, I think this is uh, great. Thank you for doing this. Um, Leslie's on the board of two organizations, the Guide Dog Foundation for the Blind and another related organization called America's Vet Dogs. And before getting into your favorite mistake story, Leslie, there's kind of a common mistake. Maybe we can just touch on real quick. This is more of a public service announcement. Mistakes people make when they see or encounter um, a guide dog or a service dog. What's the, the, the main thing that we should not do? The main thing is not to reach out and touch the dog. They're actually working dogs. Even though they look super friendly and approachable, they're working and guiding somebody with a disability. So if you think you might want to touch the dog, it's always important to ask the handler and say, would it be okay if I if I pet your dog? And the answer may very well be no, I'm sorry, not right now. It's working. The likely answer if that dog is working is no, that the dog is working. And when we're training the dogs, we go through the same process that when somebody comes up to us and either wants to touch or asks to touch the dog, if they're training or working, we do say that they're working in training so that the dog doesn't have an expectation of greeting other humans when it's out. So um, it's important that the dog stays focused with what they're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you for... Um, for that reminder, or some people might not know, and um, thank you for the work that you're doing um, with those organizations. Um, Leslie's website, uh, I should have mentioned, is tainlaw.com, T-A-Y-N-E law.com, and there'll be a link for that in the show notes. So um, Leslie, as we always start off with here, um, what would you say is your favorite mistake? So my favorite mistake relates back to when I first went out on my own, I was thinking that I needed to have a male partner. And with that, I approached a colleague from law school, a male, 
and said, I would like to go out on my own. Would you like to partner with me? And that was, that's definitely my favorite mistake of all time. A mistake because I mean, why it didn't, it didn't work out or, or, um, just the, I, it was the mistake just thinking, as you said, thinking you needed a male partner. How, how did you discover the mistake here in, in all of that? So the legal industry was, and, and still in, in many cases, is, is male dominated. So I thought that at the time, and we're talking well over 20 years ago, that I would need the assistance of a, of a male partner that in order to be taken either more seriously, gain more credibility, have entrance or access to certain groups that I needed a male partner. And with that, I, uh, again, I approached this gentleman to, to be my partner. And I, the mistake came, the, the realization of the mistake came early. And part of it was really about uh, not only the environment at the time politically, but also in terms of uh, understanding myself as a businesswoman. So the mistake was underestimating me and my abilities at the time and my need, one, for a partner, and two, the concept that I needed a male partner. Yeah. Um, so then what was your path? Um, you, you have your, your firm now, um, Tame Law. What, at, what, at what point did you form that practice and, and realize that you could do it as the head of the firm? So that, that was a very quick realization. So within two months of partnering with this person, I realized that the partnership was not going to sustain and that um, I, we had different visions and different values. And with that, I realized that um, my instincts early on in the business were good and that I didn't need what this was, was nothing more than a crutch for me. And I realized that really quickly, thankfully, I didn't let it drag on. I was very honest and I uh, approached this person and said, listen, I don't think this is a good match. I don't think that we're on the same page. And with that, I think we should dissolve the partnership. And we and and he was in agreement and we dissolved the partnership. And I ventured out on my own, changed the name of the firm and ventured out on my own. Now, it sounds like, I mean, at least you didn't compound the mistake mistake on top of a mistake of sticking with the partnership out of, let's say, not wanting to admit that it wasn't working out. Um, it sounds like that wasn't really a struggle for you, thankfully. So you bring up a good point because in like most relationships, there's a lot of reasons to stay in it. And a business partnership is is just that. It's a relationship built on the basis of business. But in my case, I could have stayed one out of guilt because this person had left their other job to uh, enter into this partnership to me, um, you know, was recently married. There were so many uh, other outside factors. So I had, had made the investment, but I had to put all that aside. That's really the emotional side of the decision-making. And I really wanted to put on my business brain and what, what was in the best interest for my business, what was in the best interest for my growth as a professional and the combination of the two. So I didn't, I didn't stretch it out. I, I did give it some thought. So it wasn't an overnight decision, but because it was early on in the business, it was a good time to say, okay, this isn't going to work. I could see immediately that the foundation wasn't there. And with that, I didn't want to go forward, starting to build a brand, build relationships. And then, and then if I felt that my partner wasn't living up to my expectations, 
then building resentment and other issues that can come with um, keeping things in place longer than they should be. Do, do, you, do you know, um, maybe not a precise number, but an estimate, you know, today here in 2022, a percentage of law firms that are headed by a woman or a group of women? Many, many more than ever before. And I'm very yeah, proud yeah. to say that as I belong to a number of groups, um, lady boss lawyers, there's, <laughs> there's boss uh, attorneys, uh, all female groups. And uh, I'm super proud to say that many of these ladies um, have left practices and opened their own, headed their own, uh, moved up to partnerships. And the landscape has, has changed considerably um, certainly of late, uh, given the ease of remote working. And with that, we have seen an uptick in the number of uh, women who have stepped outside the traditional um, law practice, law practice structure, and have opened their own or moved up. So it's a lot more than it used to be. And it's it's probably different by area. So uh, I don't have specific numbers on it, but I know that it's a lot. Yeah. And it seems like, unfortunately, there would be maybe at least two paths of, of bias, as you alluded to earlier, bias on the part of potential clients, it sounds like was a concern of yours, or, you know, bias or discrimination within a firm, as you said, being traditionally male-dominated. Um, how, how, well, how? with that, you get, in the traditionally male-dominated industry of, of law, 25 years ago, when I first started out in the legal world, the, those that were in charge of those law practices were in their 70s. And those that were in their 70s, and, and not it's not right or wrong, it's just who they were and what the environment was. They had a different perspective on women. And the perspective at the time was that women were going to come in, work for a short period of time, have a baby and leave. So a woman who was married um, or had young children or in those, those childbearing years was not of value. And that's just the um, that was just the reality. And statistically, that those that was supported so that women traditionally left the workplace during childbearing years. And um, there was a lot of investment on the part of certain firms into their um, employees and and partnership tracks. And with that investment, you know, you don't want a dead end. So I. So I, under, I understood it then. I still understand it now. But that is and was the thought process today. Today, those who are running the firms are, are, are people like myself who grow, grew up with a different mentality and thought process and know that it's manageable and one thing has nothing to do with the other. So things have changed considerably um, since I've been practicing law. Well, that's, that's good. And it, it probably in some ways will keep progressing or needs to keep progressing toward more uh, equality for women in law. Hopefully it does keep progressing and the open-mindedness of the next generations, um, even for my own children who are the next generation, they're mm -hmm. college graduates going into the workforce will uh, change the mindset and allow more opportunity uh, for equality. So maybe Leslie, one other question back to your story. Um, you know, you talked about having different visions or different values with that original partner. What, what was one example of that or you know, anything that's a cautionary tale for other people starting firms or entrepreneurs in general in terms of finding that fit? So I can tell you one story that comes to mind first, which was there was a day where 
my partner went out to do, make an appearance on a matter. And then I didn't hear from the partner all day long. And I said, well, I didn't hear from you all day long. How did the appearance go? What was going on? I said, did you give some thought to, um, you know, checking in here at the office as to what was happening? And, and there was no thought process along the lines of, I need to check in with the office, see what's happening, check for messages, um, see if there's been any changes, updates, or otherwise on other matters. And the, the response from the person was um, one in which I recall that's not an owner mentality. And an owner mentality is you do what you need to do to make your business run and you are connected to that business. You don't disappear. You don't dis- disconnect from it during working hours. And with that, I said, hmm, you know, this, this doesn't feel right to me. This isn't the mentality that certainly I have. And second, this isn't the expectation I have uh, of a partner in a very young growing business, which is that you check in with your partner, you um, let them know what happened on particular matters, and you see if there's any support that needs to be had at the office uh, without, for lack of better word, disappearing. And so I felt at the time that was not in line with my values for the business and my expectations. And that was one example and one story of something that stood out to me. And I think for other business owners and those that are, and I see this often when I deal with business clients, when they're um, discussing the challenges that they have with partners, that the expectations of one partner over the other and who does more work and who's going to do what, the division of labor, so to speak, um, gets muddied. And it's important to, to have that discussion and be on the same page and be able to work through those challenges. And I didn't feel that I could work through the challenge based on the response. And I didn't think that I could partner or continue a partnership with somebody who didn't have the same similar mindset as to the importance of the business comes first. So let me just one final, final question related to that story. When you talk about values and visions, as, as you've built your law group, as you've built your firm, um, do you, in, let's say in the course of interviewing, um, try to look for a good fit um, to, to the values and the vision? So it was ingrained in me that it's really nice to have balance when you're hiring, uh, balance to your your type of of knowing who you are. So to answer your question, I would say that one of the exercises that I've worked on over the years is understanding who I am, what my vision is and how I operate and the the value, the strengths and weaknesses that I bring to my business. So that if I'm hiring in certain positions that require a balance to that, I have an understanding of what I'm looking for. But with that, the value is value is really important. One of the most important pieces of value that I look for in somebody is loyalty, dedication, and a willingness to to be a team player. And those values, there are others, of course, but those are really important to me. I value my um, staff as as team members. I treat everybody equally. I want them to feel the same way. This is not an environment where um, there is backstabbing or everyone's or people are trying to step on each other to get up the ladder. This is an environment where we work together and we are um, team focused and loyalty is really important to me and loyalty in uh, employees and 
that means a lot for your for your team. And so when I look for hiring, when I'm looking to hire and I'm looking for a particular type of person, I do try to listen for keywords, nuances and otherwise, you know, how did they how did they respond or react to other workplace environments that they've been in? What were their struggles? What were the strengths? What did they like, not like? And it's it goes beyond really even skill set because certain skills can be taught. Um, other skills are innate. But attitude is one that can be a really great asset to a team, or it could be something that becomes a cancer. So it's the attitude um, that I'm really looking for. And that comes from that's my original story of my, my biggest or my favorite mistake, which was really starting to understand what it was that I would need on my team to be successful. Again, our guest today is um, Leslie Tane uh, from Tane Law Group. And um, on, on the website, on the blog, tanelaw.com slash blog, um, there's a lot of really helpful articles on there. And Leslie does work related to individuals and, and to businesses. So maybe you know, to explore some of that a little bit, maybe first on the side of business owners. Um, you know, I get as a small business owner, I, I get ads and solicitations for um, loans, you know, basically borrowing against future um, income, borrowing against receivables that are dragging out and, and, and being paid slowly. Um, so are, are there mistakes that business own, owners make? I haven't been in a situation where I've needed to really look into that seriously, so I just brush off the inquiries, but are there mistakes that people, businesses make with these merchant cash advance loans? So these days I see a ton of this and we have uh, an exploding part of our business in dealing with merchant cash advances and these inventory or futures purchases. Where I see the biggest mistake is a, is a desperation and a, a failure to manage funds effectively. And what ends up happening is when there's a, a cash flow issue, a shortage or otherwise, which happens, it's very common these days. The reason why it's it's more common than ever is because there are so many potential roadblocks from supply chain issues, staffing issues, um, just regulations, and people are paying, businesses are paying their, um, their, their debts much slower. So my clients who are businesses waiting for money to come in, it's not on 30 or 60 days anymore. It's on 90, 120 plus so, or they have clients that aren't paying at all or stopped paying. So there are so many reasons for the challenges that a business faces. With that, their ability to borrow is limited. And that could be for a number of reasons too. The length of time for the business, lack of appropriate cash flow, their books and records are not in great shape, and their personal credit, which is needed to personally guarantee certain debts, is not in order. So with all of that, it's the perfect storm for a merchant cash advance, fast cash, quick cash, uh, inventory, factoring. It has a lot of different names. What it doesn't call itself is a loan. And the reason why it doesn't call itself a loan is to avoid any of the lending and banking laws. And by doing so, they're able to charge triple digits in factoring. So the person could have borrowed 55000 but they're actually going to pay back 80000 And that money comes out of daily receivables. So, and that can choke a business and it often does choke a business because that money comes out no matter what. So, and it comes out first, which means that you're not paying other expenses like the inventory you need 
to create your product or distribute your, your services. And that becomes uh, an issue where there just isn't enough cash flow to keep things up. So with that, the mistake is that it's easy to get these and you can work with one, a broker or an agent, and they often will say to the business owner, just take this loan. It's a 30 day quick loan. Once you pay on it, it'll work through your credit and we'll be able to get you something better. And all of a sudden the business owner is challenged with that, doesn't realize what this is really going to do. And with that, they start taking out a second or a third, or they roll it into a fourth or a fifth. And that becomes a quite a, um, and I don't want to use the word roadblock, but it becomes quite a mess. It's like the end of a tornado. You get sucked up into the wind and what is spit out are pieces of the business barely surviving. And I have clients in situations, business owners that have had events, tragic events. In fact, I have a very quick story. Client of mine called up and said and told us that their two of their truck drivers had head-on collisions and died. In and as a result, their business went out of business. So they now had the factoring loan. The business was gone. They had uh, two deaths, you know, of employees. And this person's now on unemployment. So how are they going to pay back this kind of loan? And they're threatening litigation. And these loans are very aggressive. The the agents and brokers are very aggressive. The loan, again, let's not say loan, but the the lenders uh, are extremely aggressive. And it's like the Wild West. It's like 20 years ago in the collection industry where they'll basically tell you they're going to come out and break your legs. And that is the experience of my clients. Heavy, heavy pressure to pay back and threats of things like UCCs, litigation, frozen bank accounts, all kinds of... um, Uh, all kinds of things that are potentially detrimental to businesses. Now, of course, when I come into the picture, I can weed through all of that and I can tell my clients what to expect, not expect or otherwise. But the biggest mistake is getting involved in the first place. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that because cash flow is so limited or tight, or you think that a big project is just going to come through in 30 or 60 and 90 days, and you just need money to tie you Mm -hmm. over and that event doesn't happen, boom, this explodes. So that seems like quite the loophole, um, a, a loan that's not called a loan. Correct. I'm surprised that hasn't been tightened up. I mean, it sounds, it seems like you hear more in the news on the, the, the personal side of uh, quote unquote payday loans and, and regulations or attempts to kind of um, have, have that not be so predatory. Um, are, are there similar reform efforts there on um, the business side of this type of loan? So on the consumer side, that's always going to be the first area where the government is going to act to protect consumers. This is on the business side. So laws like the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, things of that nature don't apply under these circumstances. And yes, generally there are banking laws, but when these the way these agreements are written, they are written to avoid language that could be construed as a loan. So as long as it doesn't look or act like a loan, theoretically it's not. And therefore there are less regulations. There are There is talk about regulating these. Most of these are New York-based jurisdiction, which is really interesting because most of my clients now are all over the country. And the jurisdiction in it is New York, which means that if there's a remedy, meaning the creditor is going to sue, it's going to be done in New York. So these, all these 
businesses that are outside of the state of New York need a New York-based lawyer to make this happen and to protect them and their business. Because if there's a judgment in New York, they can then take it to another state to try to enforce that. Um, And I've seen that happen many times. But with that said, because there's so much litigation now in New York based on this, there, there have been rulings and rulings become law. And so those rulings have shaped the new loans. So what we see happen is that when the when the debtor business is struggling, the creditor asks the debtor business to enter into a new agreement, which negates all of the old terminology that might have been overturned in a lawsuit. But now they have the new terminology, which is compliant with the new um, with the new rulings. So with that, we see that as part of the mistake too. That the debtor business owner it falls into a a trap, for lack of a better word, with the agent broker or the um, with or the merchant lender. And with that, they end up signing these new agreements that get them around some of the laws. But the short answer to the question is yes. There is uh, proposed legislation about uh, making some of these tactics illegal as well, because it does target small businesses. We're not talking about uh, large corporations here that are borrowing like this. These are small mom and pop style businesses. They're usually a sole proprietor um, and they are heavily targeted. And unfortunately, just like consumers, they're very often taken advantage of. And it's and it's unfortunate what we see. So. Um, that is on the table. Wow, that's very eye-opening. Um, thank you, Leslie, for for um, talking about that. So, on on the consumer side, on the personal finance side, um, you know, cable news and, and maybe the internet also are littered with ads for debt relief, tax debt relief, debt consolidation programs and services. Um, similar question. You know, what, what are some mistakes individuals make in getting involved in in one of these programs? So from the consumer perspective, the challenge is that it's very emotional to be in debt and it's overwhelming. And what happens is that when you feel emotional, overwhelmed, and you are going through a process where you're having challenges financially, it's very hard to make good financial decisions. This occurs in businesses too, but on the consumer side specifically, the, the consumer gets overwhelmed and it makes it very easy to be um, preyed upon by those who have less than your best interests in mind. So therefore, that's why there are all these laws and things have changed in the debt settlement industry. Many states have enacted laws that prohibit it or limit it. New York is certainly one of them. There are other states that do as well. So with that, the consumer still doesn't know that. So they receive letters, they see things on TV, they go in and they're searching for debt help, and they don't know who can I trust. And who do I go after? Do I do I work with somebody that's on TV? And I often tell people that here are some of the red flags. TV is advertising just like the radio. Anybody can pay for it. So with that, that doesn't make an organization legitimate, nor does it make an organization that is out for your best interest. Again, this is the same with small businesses. You have to decide what it is that you're looking for, who you're willing to work with, and you have to go with your instincts. There are red flags. On the consumer side, money up front. They're not in your state. They haven't been in business very long. They're not holding your money. They can't answer all your questions. And if you get sued, which you very well could be and likely will be in um, the consumer credit area, who's handling it and how is it going to be handled? 
The challenge for consumers is that they don't know the questions to ask. I, as an attorney, and been in this business for as long as I have, know the questions to ask, but the average consumer doesn't. So I would say, one, go with your instinct. Does it feel right? Just because somebody has part of your social security number or part of your information, like your debt, same thing in a business. Just because they know who you creditors are and they know about how much debt you have doesn't mean that they are a legitimate organization. That information can be bought and sold easily and found easily. So don't be lured in by a solicitation you receive that has your information on it. Be prepared to question it. Phone calls, people calling you for stuff, that too these days is a red flag. Phone solicitations, text solicitations, that's something to be aware of. Ask a professional. You could call, there are professionals to look for. Look at how long they've been in business. Are they local? Do they have to, corporations and companies don't have any ethical obligation to you. Attorneys do. And um, you can always look up for, for licensing and such. But many people tell me that when they talk to these organizations that have solicited them, they didn't feel good about the call. So if you don't feel good about the call, I would say that that would be your first step. So speaking of not feeling good about a call, um, something comes to mind, and I'm sure others um, maybe face the same thing. I got a call out of the blue, which to me was a red flag, a phone call out of the blue from somebody at uh, a firm that claimed there was a check that had at some point been mailed to me for, and they gave us, they gave an amount, could have been totally made up. And they said it was mailed to such and such address. Well, that was a couple of mailing addresses ago for me. To your point, that information could be found in all sorts of places. Um, and I didn't, and they were like, oh, we'll help you recover the money and blah, blah, blah. And it, and it didn't feel right because A, it was out of the blue. B, I Googled the name of the organization and it was a law firm in another state. And I don't know, it's just, I, like, I don't really think there was a check misplaced, lost. Um, I don't know, red, red flags Am I turning my back on what might be a legitimate service? No, I think you did the right thing that you didn't feel good about the call. You didn't feel good about the information. Very often recovering money, that is a red flag, a check. They want to verify information um, and, and they're calling from out of state. Again, the, in my experience uh, over the years, that's not how creditors, collectors, and otherwise legitimate organizations uh, work. What happens is if, if you really were um, to receive a check and it wasn't sent to you, and it was a large check, you'd likely know about that. If it was, um, you would have some sort of information about it So and, and have been contacted a different way. So anytime somebody's trying to solicit money in any way, shape, or form, or confirm deliveries, monies, checks, I'm overseas, I need help, it's a friend, it's um, whatever it comes, and it can come looking very legitimate and very often comes in an email. If you're very careful in reading those emails, there's always a spelling mistake someplace or a letter out of out of the ordinary and almost British English. So, and, and that's a red flag to know that that came from outside the country. So it's important to go with your instinct like you did. And you know what? I would rather give up whatever money that is than, than be potentially victimized in a scam. It's just not worth it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if it had been, let's say, a client with an unpaid invoice from that time frame, my accounting software would flag and I would pay attention. It was a big enough number. 
Um, but you know, I, 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 I kind of, re- I was kicking myself and I realized, well, the fact that I confirmed that an old address was an old address was not the most, um, not, not the worst thing to confirm. I didn't give up any like really private, um, information that wouldn't have already been out there. So I feel like, like uh, I probably should have just hung up more quickly, but at some point that, that red flag spidey sense at least kicked in a little. Your address is out there. So all yeah. somebody has to do is put your name in Google and an address is going to pop up. It just is. And, and it's for those that think that their information isn't easily out there, it is. And the credit bureaus have traditionally sold a lot of the information. So they sell information on your credit score, your creditors, your balances, it, you know, birthdays, partial security, social security numbers are all readily available. None of that should add any legitimacy to anybody's claim that you owe money or getting money or otherwise they can give you money. So I think that's super important. I, I'm solicited all the time. And for so for for loans, especially lately, there's this loan company soliciting attorneys to give loans to. So the legal world has been hit really hard in the last two years because of the pandemic. Whole industries within the legal world have fallen apart because of the challenges faced by uh, COVID. And with that said, there, was a, there are a lot of attorneys struggling. I know this because many of them have become my client, and that's understandable. But with that said, that leaves open an opportunity for companies to say, hey, we know that there are industries that are struggling. We know attorneys are struggling. We know that uh, the accounting world is struggling in cases too. We know that certain um, practices are struggling. So they'll solicit uh, or engage in a marketing campaign towards those groups. Know that you're in a vulnerable group in some, some cases. You might not be vulnerable and need something, but the more they solicit, the more it might wear you down to make a phone call and find out whether this makes sense. And I have clients that were um, had gotten COVID early on, uh, uh, you know, pre-vaccination or or otherwise, and they are long haulers now and were very sick for a very long time and can no longer work. I have one in particular who was a doctor who absolutely will never work again. Was in a coma for six months on a ventilator and um, unfortunately will probably never work again. Doesn't have the memory, the capacity. It's just not there. So the whole practice was gone. This person has considerable loans uh, that they were paying during the practice and and was solicited even after the fact. So there are these days, the solicitations are more common for different reasons. Know if you're in a vulnerable group or if you're feeling vulnerable. If you're challenged financially, you are vulnerable. You're vulnerable because you are frightened and that's understandable and because you are ripe to be solicited and they know this. So, um, Leslie, final question. And again, our guest is Leslie Tain, uh, tainlaw.com. And you know, if somebody is being faced with calls from um, debt collectors or um, you know, being pressured or threatened in some way, um, when, when, when should they reach out to an attorney? Should they do so if specific legal action is being threatened or is there a time to be more proactive um, to, to try to get help? So what I find with consumers is when they're when they're contacted, they panic. <clears throat> so they feel that there's one, an obligation to speak to the person on the phone, two, to try to talk through the process and see if they can help themselves. 
And three, they're not thinking, well, how am I going to get help? Perhaps an attorney is going to be too costly for me, or maybe I can work through this and I can, I can get to the bottom of it myself. What I end up, what I end up finding in those situations is that anything you say can be and will be used against you. And oftentimes you've given away way too much information to a creditor, collector, or otherwise, and it would have been better to seek out and educate yourself before you made the call. But you feel panicked. And I understand that panic. It's like getting pulled over. The lights are on, the police are coming, and you feel frightened whether you did something wrong or not. And, um, you know, it's an overwhelming feeling. So that's what happens to consumers um, or even business owners when they are being, um, when they get a call like that. So my first suggestion would be stop and think. And say, okay, thank you for calling me. Let me take all the information that you're telling me, and I will. Uh, I'll get back to you. Now there'll be pressure tactics. You have to call me by four. If you don't call me by this, something else is going to happen, and or we're going to consider a litigation, or you know, we 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 need to be paid on this. Understand, you're going to get pressure. So you're going to say, thank you. I understand. I appreciate you telling me. I'm going to end the call so I can um, give some thought to this, and then that's the time to say, all right. I need some help here and reach out to an attorney who really understands the world of collection and litigation because collection is a legal world. It's not non-legal. They are working under the law to collect money from you. You as a consumer can be protected. It doesn't have to cost more. And in many cases, there could be a substantial enough savings, even elimination of the debt in whole and a small cost to have done it that way, to make sure it's done right, that you're not overpaying, that you don't end up with other other issues financially, legally, or or, um, tax-wise. And I think it's worth the extra time and a little bit of perhaps the money up front to understand what your rights are and where you stand. And sometimes it's just like in cases where client people call us and their debts are too small for us to handle, we will tell them, this is what we recommend doing. This is your debt is X amount of dollars. And what you're telling us uh, does make sense or doesn't make sense. And this is how to go about resolving it or where you're at. A a very good, reputable lawyer and law firm who's been doing this a long time understands this world very well. I mean, I mean, for me, you know, this is the back of my hand, the collection world. So, um, you know, I can, I can pretty much uh, in just a, a less than a two minute conversation with somebody advise them accordingly. Um, so with that, and, and help them stay away from bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is not the answer always. And in many cases, especially today, there's some crazy things going on in the bankruptcy courts. You want to stay away from that. Um, and for small debts, it doesn't pay at all. But to your question, should you go to an attorney? I believe very strongly in doing so. You will get the professionalism. You'll get the ethical considerations. You will be client-centric. You will be sure you'll get legal advice. Nobody other than an attorney can provide you with legal advice. Same thing with tax advice. Nobody can provide you with tax advice other than a tax professional. So with that, all of that is important information that you can get from your attorney or an attorney. Yes. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for um, being a guest here today, sharing not only your My Favorite Mistake story, but um, so much great advice and tips and help people avoid mistakes in the realm of business and personal finance. 
Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again to Leslie Tane for being a wonderful guest with us today. For links and more, uh, look in the show notes or you can go to markraven.com slash mistake 143. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.